This is The Guardian. Hello, lovely people of pods. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And uh, we're going to do something novel, actually, in this episode, because weirdly, I'm the guest. Mm, you are. There's another Murph in the room, exactly. Laura Murphy Oates. Exactly. It is I. And there is the delightful Laura Murphy Oates, who is a Full Stories host uh, and is uh, stepping in very kindly in this episode to speak to me because I've just returned uh, from... Oh gosh, three day, four day—hard to tell, Laura. But it was—it was a—it was, was a handful of days in uh, in China with the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. We went to China for the first leadership level meeting in the country since 2016. So, in this episode, I'm going to download all the uh, high level thoughts I have, haha, <laughs> and <laughs> and possibly a bit of goss as well. So. Laura, Laura, take charge. <laughs> Thank you. That's the hope. Yes, Goss. <laughs> yes, welcome back, Murph. Does it does it feel real yet? It's been a whirlwind for you this week. It has been busy, yeah, but it's been uh, fascinating, as uh, these trips generally are, and this one was particularly so. Uh, I've, I'm sort of slowly getting my land legs back. Back. We've sort of we did a trip in time zone, which is always a bit easier than the trips on the other side of the mm. world. But uh, we move very quickly, so it can take a minute for your body to sort of catch up with your spirit or something. I don't know quite what happens when you move that <laughs> yeah. fast, but we're sort of in that phase of integration, and hopefully this conversation will help me with that. Yeah, I imagine it feels surreal. You kind of witnessed history this week, really. Yeah. You were there for. Yeah. The meeting between one of the world's most powerful men, Xi Jinping, and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, they met on Monday. Can you set that scene for us? What was it like as you, Murph, being there witnessing this moment? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it was pretty amazing uh, because the meeting was held at the seat of Chinese power, which is the Great Hall of the People in downtown Beijing. If folks listening to the show have ever been to Beijing, you'll know broadly where that is. It's just basically sort of in front of Tiananmen Square and opposite the Forbidden City. So it's right in the in, in the centre of the city and the Great Hall is certainly the seat of Chinese power. Uh, the building is kind of monumental. Uh, there, there are very large uh, reception rooms, uh, lots of marble, uh, lots of chandeliers, uh, very enormous kind of uh, mustard yellow curtains kind of screen off and open up areas. Uh, and there's sort of a different sort of artwork depicting, you know, the sort of, you know, the Communist Party and, and, the, and the rise of the Communist Party in the building. So you certainly uh, you, you certainly know you are in the seat of Chinese power inside that building. The building projects the state mm. and it projects it projects the history of the Communist Party. And uh, we rattled around in the Great Hall on Monday waiting for the meeting with uh, the the Chinese president with some other delegations, which was also fun, actually, Laura. We we were we were with the Cubans mm. and uh, the Serbians and the South Africans, who were also in town having meetings at the same right, time. Right. So there's a kind of revolving door of dignitaries <laughs> going in to to meet Xi. It sounds like. 
Well, just at the moment, obviously it's been a bit quiet uh, in Beijing mm. over the last <laughs> the last few years, but certainly the Chinese government wants to project a sense of being open to the world and open for business once again. So things were a bit lively. And in terms of revolving doors, yeah, the thing I quite liked and those that are sort of into decoration were, were these giant mustard curtains that sort of <laughs> were drawn and, and opened uh, in front of rooms as various delegations went in and out. So Yes, it was a, it was a bit of a crush towards the end of the mm. day. So, from what I understand of these types of meetings, Murph, there's kind of the public facing things. There's the shaking of the hands, and then there's the going away, the behind the closed doors, where you know the yep. really um, important stuff. I, I assume happens. How did that play out? What did you see, and what can we assume of what happened behind those closed doors? Yeah, well, look, uh, sort of what happens with these meetings for um, listeners who who can't sort of conceive the logistics, you basically, as a reporter, you're taken up and uh, and you are sort of held in a position outside the bilateral room. Uh, and we had some uh, minders from the Chinese Information Service who were uh, wrangling us for this particular meeting. So we saw the Prime Minister sweep in, uh, the Prime Minister and the Australian delegation swept into the room. We saw the Prime Minister engage informally with the President just sort of on in, in the kind of margins of the room. They just sort of had an opening, a uh, little tete-a-tete, you know, I think, you know, talk about the weather, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, she, she has a sort of interesting bearing. It's a bit sort of difficult to describe. He's sort of he's quite um, he's a bit of a portly character. Uh, he's he's so he's he's a sort of large figure. I'm just talking about his physicality. Uh, he has a. He has a facial expression which is, I think, deliberately hard to read. It's sort of superficially pleasant, but the sort of what's going on behind the the sort of half smile is a bit hard to determine. But what was interesting uh, when the Prime Minister first entered the room, because obviously everyone's a bit keyed up and nervous, it's a big moment, uh, was uh, the the uh, president sort of w- w- uh, he went beyond the sort of um, half smile that he uses in public settings. He uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say slapped Anthony Albanese on the back and <laughs> laughed, but the but the atmosphere actually on the sidelines was quite informal before they moved into the formalities of. The bilateral, and again, maybe folks listening m- might have seen this on TV this week in terms of how that bilateral looks. But there's a very big table in a very big room. That the delegations sweep around either side of the table. They sit down. Both sides have prepared remarks. Uh, the Chinese president is the host. He obviously makes his prepared remarks. Then the prime minister also responds with his prepared remarks. Everybody agrees that's the spray, which is what we say in our business. That's the opening remarks. Then the journalists are bundled out of their quick sticks. And then, as you say, Laura, the real discussion occurs. And in this instance, these two uh, spoke for just over an hour. Mm. We'll go into the details of what was discussed and what was kind of achieved in this trip a little bit later. But what can we surmise that meeting would have been like, that hour-long behind-closed-doors meeting? 
Yeah, well, like I said, there was a there's a lot. I suppose how can we how can we say this to folks listening so that it, it's it's sort of like imagine yourself preparing for a meeting, one meeting for eighteen months, mm. just preparing that meeting. Yeah. You know that's your end point, and it's sort of getting towards the end point for eighteen months. I'm trying to I'm sort of saying this as a bit of description so that people understand the atmospherics. It's sort of like there's a lot of nervous energy. Mm kind of, you know, sort of bound up in that moment. And so in terms of the tone of the discussions, like I said, we were a bit surprised by this sort of informality on the sidelines before before we went in. That wasn't really what we expected to witness. We expected it to be very buttoned up and formal. Um, Anthony Albanese obviously gave a pretty detailed readout of what was discussed afterwards, and we'll get to that. Uh, but in terms of the tone of the meeting, certainly if you think about that nervous energy as the test, we saw the Prime Minister then about an hour after the meeting had finished, we saw him afterwards, and uh, and he was relieved. Mm. You could see he was sort of visibly relieved that that obviously nothing had been broached in the meeting that would be very difficult for Australia to deal with. And he thought as a starting point that it had gone pretty smoothly and pretty successfully. Mm. How so? Well, it, it was in the opening remarks, uh, the sort of uh, the attempt, I suppose, to create warmth and rapport on the Chinese side was sort of uh, set up, I guess, uh, in in a kind of Chinese fashion. Uh, the president sort of off, offered the, Australia, the visiting Australian prime minister an observation or a saying. He said, in China, we often say when drinking water, we should not forget who those who dug the well. Uh, the Chinese people will not forget Prime Minister Gough Whitlam for digging the well for us. And by that, the well, he meant the relationship, the bilateral relationship. So I think what uh, the president was trying to do in those opening remarks and sort of setting the tone of the proceedings was to pay respect, I think, to Australia, the Australian Labor Party and the Australian Labor Party's uh, sort of tradition uh, Gough Whitlam was the Prime Minister who opened diplomatic relations with China mm. 50 years ago. Uh, and so it was sort of, it was an observation intended to convey some warmth, some sort of uh, linearity in the relationship uh, and some sort of common touchstones, if that makes sense. It, it does seem there was a lot of warmth and quite a bit of pomp and ceremony throughout the whole trip, including when Albanese met with China's Premier Li Xiang. What was the kind of manner in which Albanese was received all throughout this this trip? Well, certainly more warmly than I thought, although uh, we, we need to sort of qualify warmth with the fact that in the seat of Chinese power and the Great Hall of the People, uh, we were greeted by 144, yes, we counted them, uh, military personnel uh, with bayonets fixed mm. in, that, in that ceremonial welcome. So it's, it's a projection of hard power as well as a, a kind of a, a, a sharing of hospitality, if that makes sense. So, yes, in terms of the sort of how was he received in the broad sweep of things, you know, we obviously we arrived in Shanghai, as you've said, Laura. Uh, there was a ceremonial welcome at the airport. He was swept in to a trade expo in Shanghai, lots of Australian business people there and Chinese business people and the Premier. Uh, they were, he received warmly there, semi-mobbed in this sort of convention centre 
centre in Shanghai as, as the Australian Prime Minister did a sweep through. It was, I can't describe that building to people. It was just unbelievable. And just in terms of the scale of it, and uh, the Prime Minister yeah, went through the sort of exhibits briefly, uh, spoke to many people. Many people tried to get a selfie with the Prime Minister and all of that sort of stuff as he swept uh, as he swept mm. through. Then we were in Beijing and we had the sort of projection of power element of the trip. Uh, the Prime Minister had a, a, a sort of a, a walk through. We spoke about Gough Whitlam a second ago, a walk through the Temple of Heaven, which is a major World Heritage site in Beijing and a site that Gough Whitlam had visited 50 years ago that, again, was was sort of warm and, and convivial. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, yeah, I think it was... It, it, it was warmer than I anticipated. Mm. That's the point. I sort of expected formality. I expected a projection of hard power, um, but it was warmer than I thought it would be. Much of Australian media has focused on some comments made by China's Premier Li Qiang about Albanese's <laughs> physical yes. appearance. Can you break <laughs> this down for me, most? Oh, well, I'm glad you said break it down because can I explain it? The answer is no. Um, can I can I break it down? Yes. Uh, thank you for thank you for the prompt. Uh, yes, that was sort of one of the more surreal moments I think <laughs> in the trip. Uh, they uh, because we 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 watched the the prime minister enter with a premier Lee into the Great Hall of the People because again, just make this clear to people quickly. Uh, premier Lee is is uh, in the in the Chinese power structure is Anthony Albanese's counterpart. The premier is the counterpart rather than the president, mm. right? Because the president's the head of the head of state. So, like it'd be, it'd be like the the president and the GG in our system. The premier and the prime minister are sort of equals. Their colleagues. So yes, apparently when they we were watching uh, the sort of ceremonial welcome into the uh, Great Hall of the People and the uh, military were sort of doing their military bizzo and uh, the brass band was playing the Australian national anthem, apparently the Premier said to the Prime Minister as they were walking along the red carpet, mentioned that he uh, that a, a clip of the Prime Minister walking along the Bund in Shanghai, which is a sort of major thoroughfare in Shanghai. The PM had gone out for an early morning walk. Uh, that had been captured on video by one of the travelling reporters, an Australian travelling reporter, uh, Will Glasgow, who works for the Oz, because he'd just been out having a run, basically, mm. and he saw the Prime Minister. He thought, oh, my <laughs> God, there's, oh, my God, that's that's the Prime Minister. Stopped, picked up his phone recorded him as he swept past on this walk. Albanese was wearing his Matilda's jersey, which he's sort of quite fond of these days, tends to wear when he's playing tennis and so mm. forth. Uh, that clip, that video clip that was that was then picked up on Chinese social media on WeChat and uh, Premier Li said to uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, uh, you know, people, people, wasn't clear which people, but people are basically calling you a handsome boy. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> We we were sort of, uh, as a travelling pack, a little flummoxed by Handsome Boy and um, I think it, by the Prime Minister's reaction, it's pretty safe to say he was also a little flummoxed by Handsome Boy. So we all scratched our heads a little bit about that. We didn't, it's sort of one of those things. Was it passive-aggressive? Was it a compliment? Uh, what What was that? Who can explain that, Laura? Not me. 
But anyway, I, I did report it and document it and, and share it with the folks at home. So, yep, it was definitely a I moment. I assume he took it as a compliment in the end. <laughs> I, th- I think so. Yeah. I think so. But we, were, we all did scratch our heads about it. It was certainly a bolt from the blue. Let's put it that way. Cool. I think that's good colour for the top. Do we want to get into the guts? Let's get into the guts, hey? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, Murph, meetings like the one between she and Albanese have been incredibly rare of late. Albanese is the first Australian Prime Minister to visit China since 2016, and you've described Mm -hmm. this trip as kind of coming out of the diplomatic freezer and back up to room temperature. Can you just summarise a little bit why we were in the freezer in the first place? Mm, Sure. Of course. Yeah, well, that's uh, it both, uh, as in all political things, Laura, that is both a simple and a complex story. <laughs> um, the, the simple version is uh, there, was, uh, there was a sort of succession of Australian policy decisions that the Chinese government didn't care for. The thing that sort of created the, the step change in the relationship initially was the uh, Australian government's decision to ban the Chinese company Huawei from the 5G rollout in Australia. That signalled a step change in the relationship between Australia and China because it was it was sort of seen as a hostile act in Beijing. It was seen as a hostile act, a provocation or a slight. It started there. Uh, things got ropier when uh, there was a bunch of sort of national security related law went uh, through the parliament, various tranches of things aimed to safeguard Australia's sovereignty and national security. Uh, again, the Chinese didn't care for these tranches of legislation. But things really went south. The really big bust up happened was during the pandemic in 2020 when Scott Morrison, the then Prime Minister, called publicly for an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. He had not telegraphed that through diplomatic back channels Mm. to the Chinese government before he made that call. And it came at a point of acute sensitivity for China, both domestically, because China was basically locking down its population in far more aggressive fashion than we did even in Australia. And also in the US, people may remember, of course, that there was a very much heightened sort of atmosphere around China because of the pandemic having its origins in in Wuhan obviously mm. so that was that was oh that that was bad from the chinese side that australia had sort of uh, basically weighed in and basically um, questioned you know questioned the the origins of or questioned questioned the official story of the origins of the pandemic, Mm. and things escalated from there into a full-tilt trade war. Uh, There was the detention of the Australian journalist Chung Lee, um, and, and, yeah, things, things went Uh, things escalated and escalated in terms of the rhetoric and also these sort of economic coercion and and, and punitive trade measures and sort of things hit a real kind of point of uh, difficulty just before the uh, election last year when folks will remember, you know, those incredible scenes in the parliament with Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton calling various Labor frontbenchers Manchurian candidates Mm. and so on. That was also not received well in Beijing. And it really took, I I guess, a change of government to enable the relationship 
relationship to be to be reset in a way where China or China was able to sort of go off in a different direction in terms of the diplomatic relationship without losing face. And to be clear, this trade war is really hurtful to Australia's economy. You know, China is Australia's biggest trading partner and Albanese heading into this trip said that de-escalating this trade war with China will mean more Australian jobs. What inroads were made on trade between Australia and China on this trip? Yeah, well, it, it, the sort of substantial shift happened in the lead up to the trip, Laura, mm. because obviously the, the the tariffs on barley were removed, and there's a process that will enable tariffs on Australian wine to be uh, removed or stepped down. There's still a couple of remaining sanctions. Uh, there's some sanctions against a group of Australian abattoirs, and there is still sanctions against the export of, of lobsters uh, as well. So certainly during this trip, uh, the Prime Minister made it clear to the Chinese government that Australia uh, wanted all of the remaining trade sanctions imposed at the height of the trade war to be removed or to, you know, there to be processes enabling them to be removed. So there was a sort of progress in the lead up to the to the meeting, certainly on the trade front, some specific issues were put uh, at the highest levels, which is important in the Chinese system. That's It's quite important to escalate these things because the president is the supreme decision maker and, and wields an extraordinary amount of power in the Chinese system, obviously. Mm. And then there's also a side issue about uh, the uh, a regional trade pact, which a lot of the work, heavy lifting, was done before the trip. Uh, on the trip, uh, we, we raised these two specific issues of lobsters and, and some meat exports. Uh, the Australian delegation walked away from the conversations with the view that there will be action on those fronts, hopefully in the not too distant future. And Albanese even made a point during the trade expo I saw of <laughs> holding up a lobster for a photo op. Was that some not so yep. subtle signalling there, Murph? Uh, not so subtle, Laura, no. When you've got a lobster in your hand and you're holding it aloft in front of a camera, no, I think I think you're trying to make a point yeah, there, my this love. This could be us. I think that's, <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Anyone say lobster? Oh, look, here is one. Yes, here I am holding up my lobster. And that was, a, that was interesting because a, a speech that the Prime Minister had made uh, a little bit earlier to this trade expo before we went into this massive conference centre and the craziness in the conference centre, um, I think the Prime Minister did an interesting job of trying to uh, very politely rebuke his hosts, the Chinese government, for this unilateral, for, the, for this, for this unilateral behaviour in terms of the punitive trade stuff. It was very, very carefully threaded, the needle. But the Prime Minister in his remarks at the Trade Expo, bearing in mind that there are business people from around the world at that expo and the Chinese Premier sitting in the audience listening while the PM is making his Mm. speech, the PM wanted to make the point 
that, it, you know, it's all very well for the Chinese government to say we're back, you know, we're back in the world, we, we want to restore relations and we're in for win-win cooperation and all this sort of stuff that basically are the official lines coming out of the president now. It's all very well to say these things, but it is actually governments who create the environment where trade happens. So if, uh, you know, unexpected things like all of a sudden, at, you know, 100% tariff is placed on an Australian commodity coming into China, then, you know, that is highly problematic. So, yeah, the PM sort of made a point, I think, in the speech of just saying, delivering a message uh, to the Chinese government, well, look, if you want to get the relationship back on track, then create the conditions to get the economic relationship on track. And then that was followed by this swing through at the the expo in which a lobster, conveniently, Laura, was found mm. And, and held aloft, almost as if someone was trying to make a point. A raise for the PR person who spotted that, <laughs> that press opportunity. Um, exactly. China also had, you know, some interests to advance when it comes to trade. Specifically, I'm talking about a regional trade pact that they would like to be uh-huh. involved in. What was discussed well, well, first of all, let's just say this is a regional tra- trade pact with the worst acronym mm. ever worst ever underlined. So this agreement that we're talking about is the, uh, gosh, I'm going to even have to look for my note. Yes, the regional trade pact that we're talking about is the CPTPP. I kid you not. That is what it's called. Anyway, it's quite a big... Yes. No. Yes. Yeah. Do it once and then never again. No one likes that. Exactly. Once, never again. Exactly. This is a regional trade pact China very much wants to join it. This is the short version. Uh, uh, China would very much like Australia's support to join this regional trade pact. Uh, The sort of conditions of the regional trade pact is that everybody has to agree before they allow new members to come in. Uh, Other countries have made it clear, other signatories to this agreement have made it quite clear that they will not support China's entry Mm. into the agreement. So, at one level, it doesn't matter what Australia does. Australia could support China and it would make no difference because obviously everyone's got to agree. We did have a level of anticipation on the trip that China, that Australia may uh, sound more supportive about China's entry into this agreement than they have done previously. Uh, I think uh, basically what happened is that the Chinese president raised it, but in indirect terms during the, the meeting with Albanese. So Australia's position is remains essentially, essentially a holding mm. one, which is uh, everybody who is a signatory to this trade agreement has to have very, very high standards. Uh, sort of entry into the pact is via unanimous agreement. Brackets, we'll see what right. happens. Uh, but, but I would not be surprised, honestly, to see down the track Australia signalling support for China's entry or, or if not support, then at least neutrality about it. I wouldn't be surprised, mm. but it didn't happen on this trip. So Murph, moving away from trade, there were some serious points of tension on Albanese's agenda that he wanted to discuss with some of the leaders there. As Albanese pointed out, you know, Australia and China have very different political systems and China yep. is currently imprisoning Australian citizens. Uh, how was that Raised. Oh, that, that was most certainly raised. The Prime Minister made it clear before he departed Australia that he intended to raise the issue of human rights generally and also the case of Dr Yang, who is 
a, a writer and a democracy activist who has been detained in China for almost five years. Uh, I think we said uh, a few minutes ago, Laura, that an Australian journalist, Chiang Lei, had been returned to Australia, very welcome, after a period of detention, I think from memory, about about three years. But Dr Young remains detained uh, in China. Uh, the Prime Minister raised that directly and he confirmed to us afterwards that it had been raised directly when we asked him what the response from the Chinese president had been. Uh, uh, the Prime Minister declined to be specific about what the, the President had said. His case mm. is a bit more complicated uh, than, the, than the other one, uh, but uh, nonetheless, it, that, that was certainly raised. That was certainly raised in the bilateral meeting with the President. Right. Another point of tension is China's support of Russia in the Ukraine war. A bunch of Western countries, including Australia, have appealed to China to use its influence to persuade Russia to, to end the war. Was Albanese able to apply further pressure on this trip? Yeah, well, interestingly, a, a couple of weeks, I think, before we all turned up in the Great Hall of the People, Vladimir Putin had turned up in the Great Hall of the People and there was much sort of pomp and ceremony around that bilateral visit and uh, China and Russia have a special relationship, obviously. As you said, Laura, uh, world leaders, uh, Albanese and others, have made the point to the Chinese leadership that it uh, that the government could certainly win itself some international brownie points by using its influence with uh, the Russian president to, you know, basically pressure him to come to, uh, uh, you know, come to some sort of end of that conflict in Ukraine. In terms of how it was briefed to us afterwards, I don't know that the Prime Minister was, uh, you know, said explicitly how about Vladimir Putin. Uh, I think what the Prime Minister said in general was that they talked around the sort of international environment, instability in the international environment, the conflict in Ukraine, the conflict in the Middle East, and also uh, Albanese made the point to his host that regional stability is also tied up with both of those things and the, and the sort of successful resolution of both of those conflicts. So uh, long-winded way of saying, yes, it came up, but indirectly. Sounds like both on human rights and the question of, you know, China's role in the war, we're getting you know, some very careful statements about what went on and what was discussed, Murph. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's true. I think, uh, yeah, he was pressed sort of on uh, to be, he being the Prime Minister, was pressed uh, to sort of elaborate further on what other human rights issues he raised specifically apart from the case of Dr Young uh, and he was, uh, you know, I don't think we got a direct answer to that mm. question, uh, what other human rights issues were raised. Uh, and in terms of Ukraine, yes, uh, there are an indirect signal that I'm sure the Chinese government would have known what the Prime Minister was referring to, but certainly in the version that we were, you know, we were given afterwards, the version of the conversation, it was, yeah, it was careful. Mm. The language was careful. Yeah. There were some key announcements about an increase in dialogue between the leaders going forward and also greater ease of movement between our two countries for everyday people or, or for business people at least. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, all that's pretty important. If you if you think about 
where we've been, which is in this situation where normal relations between our two countries have not really been there. And by normal, I mean diplomatic relations have been either strained or non-existent for, you know, five or more years. The resumption of some of these uh, sort of uh, events that are in the diaries of the leadership in both countries are actually very important to the extent that uh, obviously uh, the Prime Minister's sort of primary objective in uh, this diplomatic reset with China, apart from obviously preserving uh, Australia's most important trading relationship, which gives a lot of a, a lot of income to the country, the other key objective the Prime Minister has is to be able to pick up the phone. The Prime Minister wants to be in a position to pick up the phone to the Chinese leadership, to the President and the Premier and have his call taken. And the reasons for that are myriad and various, and we could probably get into them, Laura, when we talk about some future flashpoints ahead. We can probably just touch this lightly for this second and come back to it in a minute. But those relationships are actually really important and fundamental. And so, uh, you know, there, there, there's a whole bunch of dialogues that are now back on track and will occur annually. Yeah. Also, in that people-to-people -people sort of framework, there, there, there will be a new multi level or multi-entry visa offered uh, between Australia, Australian, uh, for Australians and Chinese people, business people, students, others, uh, so that people are able to come in and out of the country, you know, reasonably with, without too many impediments. And again, that's about sort of creating understanding in the sort of institutions of both countries about the thinking in both countries. Because uh, if you're not talking, if there's, no, if there's not regular contact, if there's not not regular dialogue, then you really don't understand what's going mm. on. So that's a kind of overarching diplomatic objective of the trip is to sort of just resume those conversations at, from the highest level to, you know, just between ordinary people going to and from the country. Right. And piecing all of this together, I mean, the, the advances made on, on trade, the kind of friendly statements that were said throughout the year, how different a place are we in at the end of this week? than we were a week ago, a month ago, in terms of Australia's relationship with China. Is, is this a significant shift right now? Oh, it's, it's a significant reset. There's no, there's no doubt about that. I mean, what happened, what, what I witnessed over the last few days and what's been playing out over many, many months is, is a significant reset in the relationship. We were at a point where we were, you know, where we were facing punitive sanctions on on. Australian exports, and we were at a point where there was a, there was no dialogue. There was no dialogue between our two governments. Now we've sort of walked through that doorway, for want of a better mm. term, right? So we've stabilised the trade stuff. We're back to a degree of diplomacy, uh, but the reasons for that are are complex. And uh, you know, it's not just that Anthony Albanese is a genius. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's there was a desire on on China's side to reset. That was that's very fundamental part of this, uh, but also the government set that up quite patiently and deliberately over the last 18 months. Um, uh, but uh, So we're in a different place today, whether we will still be in this different place in, uh, in a month's time or six months' time is a completely open question at this mm. point. Murph, I want to delve into that idea that you mentioned that, 
you know, this wasn't all just down to Albanese's genius plan and his strategizing on this relationship. Mm. Many Australian commentators have suggested that the progress made at this meeting is actually a result of successive Australian governments staring down China's assertiveness of, of a kind of strong arm approach that Australia has taken in the past. What do you mm. think of this idea? Oh, I think I think there's a certain amount of validity to that. Um, Australia has come through a very significant test in our region over the last five years. Uh, I think, uh, you know, as we said a little while ago, Laura, Australia started to assert more, more forcefully and more publicly, and also legislatively, the the you know imperative of preserving our sovereignty and our security in a very dangerous time. Uh, that China didn't like that. Uh, the retaliation was sh- was sharp, uh, protracted, and significant. Uh, you know, the, the basically the you know the president, the regime in in Beijing, has subject, subjected Australia to a very you know overt, loud, noisy campaign of economic coercion over the last five years. I think in terms of our standing in the world and our standing in the region, it was very important that Australia asserted the values of of liberalism throughout that period and asserted its right to sort of create a relationship with the regional superpower uh, on its own terms. So, yes, there is a connection to... Uh, the sort of uh, refusal of Australia to submit to a campaign of, let's just be frank, Laura, bullying, um, that it was very important that Australia didn't submit, I think. Uh, I think that campaign uh, against Australia really backfired for China in the world. And I think that's part of this. I think the whole sort of period of wolf warrior diplomacy, so this very assertive, aggressive rhetorical position in the world, I think basically, uh, you know, made lights switch on in the capitals of the major powers around the world. I think the bullying that China inflicted on Australia actually woke up the Europeans, the Brits. Um, I think the uh, I think the United States was was fully aware of this because they are engaged in a full frontal strategic competition with Beijing. But I think honestly, the uh, we what happened here actually influenced the play internationally and uh, and countries around the world started to adopt a much more hardline stance mm. against Beijing's use of soft power in their jurisdictions. So it's actually been quite important. Like, you know, Australia is not always important on the world stage, but I think this in this sort of sequence of events, we were mm. and we have helped sort of change the, the kind of international perceptions of China. Now, China has paid a price for the assertiveness in its diplomacy and uh, and people have, uh, you know, are much more reluctant, I think, to sort of engage with China at a substantial level as a consequence of what's happened in recent years. So getting back to where we started with the question, Laura, you know, was this Albanese strategic genius? Well, no, um, I, I don't want to... Uh, damn the government with faint praise because the amount of work that went into this reset is just astonishing. Mm. 
and and the and it was very carefully calibrated and thought through at every point. But in terms of China wanting to re-engage with Australia, at the end it felt a bit like kicking on an open door. Yeah. You know, the very the very distinct impression, you know, I was saying to you before that that the warmer that the, the visit was much warmer than I thought it was going to be. It was very obvious being there, bearing witness, looking at the atmospherics and looking about how the Chinese government orchestrated the, the events of the week. It was very obvious that China wants this moment to happen. Mm. It's not like we've persuaded them against their will. It's China wants this to happen, and there's a bunch of reasons why China wants this to happen. It serves their global interests after they've, you know, set off a, a series of alarms around the world that, you know, they can mm-hmm. shut down trade to other countries and they can damage other countries' you know, well-being at the, the flick of a switch if they like. Yeah, well, you, well, you just look at it quickly. I mean, we can just sort of like we can just sort of do a couple of dot points, right? What's happened as a consequence of this behaviour? Australia has been pushed. I mean, Australia has always been a staunch security ally of the United States, but Australia has been pushed very much back into the US sphere of influence in the in the Pacific, mm. right? We've done the AUKUS agreement. We've we have been very forceful in making it clear you know, who's the important ally, right? Mm. Whereas before all of this, perhaps we would have played those those sort of questions slightly more neutrally, at, at least in the public space. So Australia, you know, the, has been sort of put back into the US sphere of influence. That's problematic for China. Mm. Um, and as you say, there's, it's, there's a bunch of countries now around the world that are actively pursuing trade diversification strategies, so trying to sell their goods to other countries, because they've seen that China can switch it off switch off trade with the flick, you know, the flick of a couple of fingers. Mm. Like, so I think it has not served China's international interests, what's occurred with Australia. So from the Chinese perspective, the sort of telegraphing of this visit internationally is is quite important to sending a signal that, oh, no, we're past all of that, that kind of period. We're all open for business. We're all cuddly friends now. It's all going to be fab. Right, so you could see at close range, you could see you could see that far more than you would be able to see that back in Australia. Regardless of whether the success of this trip is all down to Albanese, uh, it will be seen as a success domestically. Will it provide a, a kind of political boost for Albanese and and the Labor government? Well, it should because he's done something quite important here. But I think the thing is. Uh, it may not. Uh, I think if we sort of think about that story I was telling you about Shanghai and the Prime Minister's language, that he was very careful to assert degrees of difference between Australia and China and careful to, as politely as possible, rebuke his hosts. It's sort of like, I think if we think about the Australian voters at the moment, Uh, And we've been through the voice referendum, so we know how people are very, very preoccupied with their practical material circumstances at the Mm. moment. Uh, I think the thing is uh, Australians were concerned, I think, by the sort of uh, heat in the relationship between Australia and China and things were getting, let's be honest, insane ahead of the ahead of the election. Mm. Things were really rolling off the rails. Um, I think Australian voters will want 
to feel as though the Australia's relationship with China is being managed with a degree of finesse and skill. I think they will want that that sort of to bank that in the back of their minds. Oh, yes, that's okay. I don't have to worry about mm. that. But at the same time, it's politically, it's a fine line, isn't it? You don't also want to, if you're Anthony Albanese, look as though you're being too chummy with China, look as though you're rolling over on important things, that you're sort of, you know, opening yourself up to be a vassal state or whatever else. It's it's actually, in terms of the domestic dividend, which is your question, it's a, it's there's a fine line the Prime Minister's got to walk, mm. I think. He's got to sort of tell Australian voters that this relationship's important for trade and for our regional security. But And uh, obviously normalising the relationship is a plus. I'm sure that's a plus for voters. But the tone of it is really important because, uh, you know, people won't want to think that he's rolling over. Mm basically. Right. Some in Australia have also critiqued the Prime Minister for heading out on this global whirlwind trip during a cost of living crisis. He is now on his way to the Pacific Islands Forum as well, and he's recently been to the United States. Is that really a valid, is that really a valid critique? Murph, we do hear this a lot when leaders go overseas. I think it's, I think it's silly, quite honestly, mm-hmm. the sort of growing drumbeat of, you know, why is Anthony Albanese not here managing my grocery bill? I mean, look, obviously the Prime Minister needs to be in Australia and focused on domestic issues. But I don't see that, I think, you know, sometimes in these discussions a false binary is created, right? If the Prime Minister is overseas, then he is not looking after my interests domestically. Mm. Well, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. The Prime Minister is overseas a lot this year because the world is a very dangerous place. I think people understand that. Every time we look at the news, we understand how how awful a lot of the world is right now. And the Prime Minister, I think, is very, very much attuned to trying to, as we said before, build relationships in the region and in the world so that we can basically, to protect Australia's interests in some very difficult and complicated times. So, you know, just think about cost of living just quickly, right? Obviously, why isn't Anthony Albanese doing something about cost of living? Well, he is doing some things, first answer. Second answer, imagine what a war would do to cost of living, right? I don't want to say this in some alarming or hysterical way, but... That's what is happening at the moment among decent democracies around the world. Leaders are very much attuned to trying to prevent conflict. That's what they're doing. And that's pretty important for our interests. So obviously the PM needs to not, you know, just spend all of his life on a 747 aircraft or whatever, jetting about the world and, you know, head off to the Maldives afterwards or whatever, obviously. But I think the the binary that gets created sometimes is, is, is about politics. It's not really about substance. Mm. You've said that the next phase of Australia-China relations will be something new. We're not going back to what it was like five, six years ago. We're embarking on a bit of a new phase. What will that phase look like? And what are the, the big tests ahead for this fragile kind of new bond? Yeah, and it is fragile. That's the right way to think about it, Laura, because there are a million things that could upset it. 
Uh, and you sort of start from first principles, the fact that we are two very different systems. There is a, 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 an authoritarian regime in power in Beijing. If you are present in Beijing, which I've been privileged enough to be, you know, in Beijing and Shanghai, the two biggest cities uh, in the country over the last few days, you are acutely aware that this is a police state. You are acutely aware of surveillance, pervasive surveillance everywhere you look, police, cameras, you name it. It's, it's oppressive. So there are, you know, China is that, Australia is not that. We are always going to have different objectives. And the sort of trick in the relationship is managing the differences, I suppose, or not letting, as John Howard used to say, the differences sort of define the relationship. Mm. Now, what could go wrong, you ask me? Well, the answer to that question is any number of things. Uh, shortly, Australia will release a new cybersecurity strategy, for example. Uh, I think the Chinese government will be looking very carefully around the measures around that and the language that the Australian government uses in relation to that. There are any number of national security laws that could be adjusted over the coming years in order to safeguard Australia against espionage or or other, you know, or, or other incursions that are not in our national interest. That will also, you know, uh, Beijing will not be happy about that. There are any number of tensions on the high seas any day of the week, you know, around the South China Sea, a contested area, uh, around, you know, around the Philippines. There's been some bumping of boats recently. There are any number of uh, sort of atmospherics or, or practical um you know, uh, uh, conflicts in the, in those parts of the world that could set off, you know, basically cause a backtrack in the reset uh, that uh, that uh, the prime minister and the and the Chinese president have sort of executed executed over the past few days. So, South China Sea always a flashpoint, always tricky. Taiwan, any number of things around Taiwan could set off a flashpoint. Like there are a million things that could upend mm. this. So this is why we sort of have to say sort of like a, a number of things have to be simultaneously true here, Laura. Uh, it is true that we have embarked upon a stabilisation of the relationship, which is uh, substantive. It's not just words. Substantive things have occurred mm. here. This is a, this is a big, big uh, thing that's happened. Will it last? God knows. And both of those two things are, are true at the same time. They occupy the same level of space. We've done something big here. The reasons are complicated. Looking forward, will it work? Will it persist? Will it be resilient? Who knows? Murph, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. This episode was produced by Phoebe McElwraith. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. 